0: A l t. dot c o m i c s. Alt Comics. Okay, so we're here with Jim Rugg. Hi, Mark. Hey, how's it going?
1: going great. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good. Do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, my name is Jim Rugg. I'm a cartoonist. I live in the Pittsburgh area. I started making comics around 2000, and I'm currently doing a series of graphic novels with image comics called Street Angel. Uh, This is a return to a character that was actually the first published comic um, I ever made was called Street Angel, and it was published with a small indie publisher out of California, SLG. And from there, I went on to work for um, Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, doing work for hire and some creator-owned books like The Plain Janes uh, with DC Comics, which was a young adult series. And, um, you know, after about 10 years, we did a collection, a hardcover collection of Street Angel, and it sort of got me excited about the character again. So uh, I have a writing partner, Brian Maruca. We started making new Street Angel comics, and that's what Image is currently publishing.
0: Okay, and so you've got two of these out already, and there is a third one scheduled for later this year.
1: Yes, there's a third volume coming out in October called uh, Street Angel Superhero for a Day.
0: Right, and what what can we expect in that? It, it looks a bit different uh, from what I've seen.
1: Well, um, <laughs> Street Angel and her friends... Uh, she has some friends from school and they kind of love her because whenever they're hanging out with her usually some kind of adventure happens so if they're you know bored teenagers and they find her somewhere uh, it suddenly picks up their afternoon so in this case they they come across an alien artifact and the alien artifact they kind of have to decide what to do with it it has a somewhat profound impact on the group and the group dynamics and we get to see like you know what makes a superhero and and you know, I consider Street Angel a superhero, so whenever this enters the group, it kind of changes the way, they, the, the way they interact, and uh, they have to sort out what that means.
0: Now, so you've done each of, of this current series of three books and a little bit of a different style from each other, and it's different from what came before. Uh, previously with Street Angel, it was all black and white and a fairly kind of, I, I would say, tight inking style and that was followed up by Aphrodisiac, which is a spinoff. And that was all kind of done in a, I don't want to call it retro color thing. It was made to look like old comics. And now you've, you've left off in a like totally different direction, very uh, different rendering style. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So the first Street Angel
1: series was black and white, You know, as you said. And the reason for that was practical. Like I was interested in doing my own characters and, you know, I had been making mini comics and self-publishing at the time. Again, this is in the early 2000s and color just was expensive. It was prohibitively expensive for most small publishers or self-publishers. And also it was a lot more complex, you know, like I was still very new to making comics. So black and white was great for me. I loved black and white comics, made black and white comics and publishers, you know, that made sense at the time. Um, I'm trying to think of the timeline. It was probably four or five years after that Black and White Street Angel series that I got to Aphrodisiac, you know, and I had done other comics in between, um, you know, and was starting to be exposed more to color and printing was changing. So like suddenly color was something that was more accessible and I would get invited to uh, be in anthologies. And that's where Aphrodisiac started to appear in all of these different anthologies, some of which offered color. So You know, that was some of the first color comics I ever worked on. And it was a retro palette. Um, You know, I I, I was having... uh, Personally, I wasn't excited by a lot of the color comics that I was seeing. People were doing digital color, and in a way, it was too perfect for me. You know, it was sometimes it would be very flat, or the gradients would be perfect. um, And it just felt strange. You know, it, it had a strange effect on the artwork. And so whenever I started doing color comics with Aphrodisiac... I went back to kind of how were comics colored that I liked, you know, these old comics that I grew up reading. And it's a very simple color palette. And it was very easy. Well, it wasn't very easy, but it was something that I tried to approximate with aphrodisiac because, as you said, it's supposed to look like old comics. You know, it's a character that is supposed to look like it it was from the 1970s or early 1980s. And so I tried to be as authentic as I could with the coloring process. And that old color process had a very limited number of colors that you could use, which again, helped me a lot because I was very new to that. Uh, you know, you you can open Photoshop and find a million colors. And for me, especially early on, it was just overwhelming too many choices. So, um, you know, I trimmed down my color palette based on those old comics and color and and created aphrodisiac, uh, with my writing partner, Brian Maruca. And, um, you know, it kind of helped me ease from this black and white indie comic tradition into more of like where we are now. You know, like learning how to use color and how to apply color. And so after Aphrodisiac, you know, I didn't want to repeat myself or, or limit myself in the colors that I was using. And so I started to you know kind of expand my palette, which brings us to like the new Street Angel series, which is, you know, the kid gloves are off or the training wheels are off, and I'm just trying to make the best looking comics that I can make. Um, you know, aphrodisiac was very much supposed to look like an old comic book. And for me, street angel, I want it to look like a new comic book. When you're looking at comic books on the, on the new comics rack or in your comic book store, I want street angel to stand out as being like now, you know, and, and hopefully exciting and in, in every way that I can make it. And that includes the color and the approach to art. Um, you know, you had mentioned uh, one difference in style being like a very tight inking style of those early comics that I made and you know that's that's what I grew up with like I learned how to ink traditionally how to make comics very traditionally and, and use tools like sable hair brushes and uh crow quill pen nibs <laughs> and I enjoy that stuff I admire it uh you know so I honed my craft on that but as I started to try to do a more contemporary coloring style I started to struggle with how that heavy ink line fits next to gradations or Um, you know, textures are now being handled more on the color side rather than on the ink side. And because I do everything myself visually, I'm able to kind of like switch some of these tasks. You know, I'm able to do a little bit more of my volume and modeling and atmosphere in the color rather than in the line work. And as a result, the line work changes, you know, kind of changes to keep up with that to complement it. So it's definitely a transition. You know, I think there's uh, less emphasis on my line work now than there was, 15 years 10 or 15 years ago
0: mm. now you you grew up reading comics and did you I mean have you continuously read them since then or uh, something I hear pretty, from people a lot is they, they you know uh, have taken a break uh, I, I know I would fall into that category
1: yeah pretty much I used to say that I came to comics late uh, because I started reading them probably when I was 10 or 11 I got a paper out which meant my own income and I could buy whatever I wanted so I, I bought a comic and I loved it but like the few people I knew who read comics kind of were stopping at that point, you know, getting up to like age 12 or something, they were just out. But now I think like people start reading comics whenever they're adults. So being 10 or 12 really isn't, uh, I wasn't too late to the game, but I started reading them and immediately like I saw the credits in the front of the comic for penciler, artist, whatever. And I made that connection that somebody, somebody, this is their job. And like instantly I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I pretty much have been a reader ever since. One thing that has happened as a reader, though, is I'll get tired of whatever comics I'm reading. So, for the first several years, I read Marvel and DC stuff I was buying off a newsstand, and that was what I had access to. And then, whenever Image started, I loved all those artists. And so, a lot of that stuff was being sold in comic book shops. So, I had to find a comic book shop, you know, and now I'm looking at like creator owned books and kind of like indie books. And that was very exciting. But after a couple of years, it's kind of like, all right, you know, I want to see something new. And I and I got into alternative comics. Uh, that was probably the late 90s. Like each time when I started to kind of wander away from comics, I would find some new vein that I could mine. And so like from the alternative comics, that's about when I started making comics and I found mini comics, uh, which were, you know, th- that's really the thing that brought me in. Like I went to my first SPX in 2000. And came home with boxes of mini comics that were beautiful and like stuff I had never seen, n- never imagined. And so I just started making my own books at that point, and that was really great. And then like manga started to come into bookshops, and you know, I m- moved into that. So it, it was like each time I would get tired of whatever comics I was reading, I could kind of pivot and find some new genre or new source of material, um, you know, probably around. I don't know, shortly after manga, I started reading old newspaper comic reprints. So, you know, there was always some vein of of new comics for me. And I think that's that's a big thing that informs the comics that I make. In my mind, it's like put all the stuff I like together, you know, so sometimes there may be odd references or hopefully some influences that aren't obvious to everyone because they're coming from maybe some comics they haven't necessarily read.
0: Right. So I'm, I'm looking through uh, aphrodisiac here, and a lot of these comics obviously uh, were not just made uh, before you started reading comics, but before you were even born. So at what point did you sort of start uh, getting into the older books? Do you actively seek them out?
1: Yeah, I definitely went through a period of time of you know, back issues, um, probably about the time that every, everything started going to trade paperbacks. My response, of course, is, oh, let's go look at, you know, what isn't a trade paperback. Let's go celebrate comic books, you know, and then everybody started dumping their back issues. You know, I think I I don't know exactly the timeline for that, but like everybody started dumping back issues and suddenly it seemed like every comic store I went into would have a bunch of old comic books that were affordable for me. And, you know, it's the same thing like that stuff to me. It had a different voice. It had like it probably, you know, had a different audience for the most part. It just felt like once again I'd found this new batch of comics that were crazy. And with Aphrodisiac in particular, I always say like nineteen seventies Marvel, it's almost like the inmates were running the asylum. Like they had a restrictive distribution deal with DC comics through a lot of the Kirby Marvel Universe creation time period. And whenever whenever that you know, it limited the number of comics that they could publish. And whenever that distribution deal ended, it was like, you had the Marvel Universe as this very popular thing, and suddenly they could do as many books as, as possible. And so you had like the talent kind of o- overrunning the editorship. you know It was like suddenly they expanded, and you got all these weird comics, and I love that era because like there's just weird stuff:
0: It's really. And I real like stuff, weird yeah. comics. There are some of the strangest comics. Like I, I can't tell you how many times I've reread the Steve Gerber and Dave Anthony Kraft uh, defenders. Uh, I, they hold up, I think. Either that, or I'm just going senile. But incredible. Steve Gerber's
1: such a great, yeah, such a. He's such a great writer for comics. Like he really personifies that idea of weird and subversive. And you know, I think about the strengths of comics all the time compared to other storytelling media and having like a very small creative team is such a virtue it's very unique you know if you compare it to television or movies there's nothing they don't compare and so you get a guy like Steve Gerber who has this this point of view that's totally him and you get to see that in those comics so yeah i'm 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 pro steve gerber like one of the works that i really like of his it came towards the end of um I, I guess well maybe maybe not towards the end of his life but in the 90s whenever image popped up he did a backup feature uh, on the flip side of Deathblow called Cybernary and uh, it's it's one of my favorite comics and the artist died very very young like it's the only comics that he produced um, I think his name is Manowar or Manabat <sighs> that's awful that I can't I can't put my finger on it right now but um, it's a very interesting series and it's it's one of the Steve Gerber comics that that you know came into my life at a formative time uh, that's you know it's it just is different than everything else and that's what i you know that's my favorite thing in comics like the things i value i say like show me something i haven't seen before or show me something that i've seen but show it to me in a better way or a new way and so you know guys like steve gerber like comics are littered with these these unique voices that are doing things that aren't like anything else. And that can be good and bad. You know, the the great thing is there it is, you know, you found this unique story. The bad can be, if you want more, sometimes there isn't any more,
0: you know? Right. Yeah. I have, I have a whole huge box of Steve Gerber comics and I have not heard of that one. I'm going to have to go track that down uh, as soon as we get off the phone. Basically be warned because
1: it was greenlit into a series that he wrote for, I don't know, half a dozen issues, but the original artist had died and I, I remember reading an interview with Gerber where he kind of said, you know, he, he just lost his interest in it kind of went away. You know, the original artist was spectacular
0: Huh.
1: and this new series, you know, nothing against the guy that drew it, but he wasn't of that level.
0: Right. It's, it's amazing how many people come and go uh, from comics, like incredible, incredible artists who either go on to something like animation or, or do something else entirely, or, you know, just, Quick comics, uh, and then come back maybe years later. It's one of you those... say that, Did you say that that's incredible? I feel like the way the comics industry
1: is, that one actually makes. That's probably the most sensible thing that. Happens. Well, yeah,
0: okay, it is. Um, <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Yeah, you know, as as a okay, let's say, as a reader, it just drives me nuts that these great artists stop making comics and do something else, and I don't have another you know, whatever, like that they had when they first were breaking out. I'm not going to name names here, but. Um. Yeah, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm, I agree with you a hundred percent. And like you said, those guys do surface in different places and sometimes they come back, but you know, and it's not all on the comics industry side of it either. Creating comics is a, is a challenging, it's hard in that it's so time consuming, you know, and it's, it's kind of obsessive in it, in the way it works. Um, so I, I understand, you know, I always think we're lucky if you get that thing that makes you excited from that artist. If you get one of those, we're lucky. Right. And then, you know, if they have a long career, that's all the better. But I, I, comics are can be hard. I I like so many comics that it's easy for me to go from doing a creator own thing or doing mini comics or doing a web comic to doing you know, a wrestling cover or a fill-in issue of iZombie or something. Like, I I just, I love making comics, so it doesn't, you know, there are a lot of different versions of comics making that appeal to me. Um, Whenever I first started, like, one of my goals was to do some work for hire just to work with editors, Um, you know, because I always say, like, I'm self-taught as a cartoonist, so that was early on, that was part of my plan was let me see what they can teach me, (laughs) Uh, you know, so – And it's fun. Like, I've been doing wrestling comics for, um, I think it's Boom is the, I'm not even sure the, I think Boom is the publisher, uh, but WWE covers, because I like wrestling, and it's like, somebody emailed me about it, and it's like, yeah, I like wrestling, sure. You know, and I've done like, uh, I think I've drawn Macho Man, Randy Savage, George the Animal Steel, um, Ric Flair, Mankind, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, so like a bunch of these Hall of Fame WWE wrestlers that. I grew up a fan of or enjoyed their work. So it's kind of a lot of those jobs are fun. You know, I've done like GI Joe covers. That's, that's me making my inner 12 year old happy.
0: Yeah. Those are, those are um, cool gigs. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking here. I've got in front of me, super mag, which has a, uh, a wrestling cover on it, in fact. And, uh, this is, I would say out of your work, one of the oddest items. How did this come about? Um, what What's going on there?
1: Okay. So Super Mag is uh, like a one-person anthology. You know, I hate to say in the tradition of 8-Ball and books like that, but, you know, those books meant a lot to me, and I was definitely thinking of those, uh, even if, if Super Mag is, is somewhat different. Um, I studied graphic design in the 90s, and it was after the desktop publishing revolution. So, like, the, the people that were pushing that the furthest in terms of design, you would see it in magazines, you know, so like magazine art directors were kind of like rock stars for me in the 90s. And then, as you know, you know, print sort of went through its own revolution and, and a lot of aspects of printing kind of died or went away. And a big part was advertising revenue. So magazines just aren't what they were 20 years ago. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I, that's something I won't ever get to do. And then I ended up getting an art director job for a couple of issues of a print journal. And it was like, rekindled my love of magazines and I had been doing a lot of different art myself at the time. Like I was doing gallery shows in LA. Um, I was doing this series of comic pages that were just standalone pages, but they were meant to look like they were part of a longer story. So it might be like page seven of some story, but I don't have the rest of the pages here. You know, you just have to enjoy this one page and guess about, you know, kind of infer what happens next, you know, fill in the gaps. And so like I had these bits and pieces and I started to realize like they would fit in a magazine, you know, like when I was doing the art director stuff, it sort of made sense to me how I could present all of these different bodies of work that I was accumulating. And I put together a proposal for, for it. And I gave that to ad house, you know, Chris Pitzer at ad house books. He had published aphrodisiac uh, maybe a year or two before that and has a background as an art director and likes print and was open to it. So that's how that book came about, and that's kind of it's it's basically me making a magazine. Um, just all the parts are from me. So like the 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 book is structured like a magazine. When you open it up, the first several pages are what would be like advertising in a in a magazine if you just went to the supermarket and opened up a magazine. And then it gets into some like one page pieces that are supposed to resemble um, uh, like columns and editorial pieces. And then it gets into sort of the, the meat of the book and their longer short stories uh, that ran in a variety of places from like you know, New York Magazine. I think there's a fashion story from that and a, a, like a pulp hero that um, Brian and I had done for Dark Horse. So it's, you know, it's, it's all these pieces. They're just all coming from me. And the idea is to, to follow a magazine as the blueprint of how the pieces relate to one another
0: it's an incredible range of styles and just your control. Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible to me that you can pull this off. I've, as you've pointed out, I overuse the word incredible. <laughs> <laughs> you can never say
1: incredible too much incredible. in regards to my work. Ah, okay. I, I think that's, that's okay. Modest. <laughs> at least I too. won't
0: object. Yes. <laughs> Folks. Jim Rugg is an incredible artist who can master a wide variety of styles and pull it off. He's also very modest. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this and the, the one for me is actually one of the simpler ones where it's the Dick Tracy, uh, the Die Hard. Well, it's, it's Die Hard, but done in a sort of a Chester Gould style. And I don't know what it is, but somehow I keep coming back to that. And then also um, you have a fairly large body of work uh, that's it's uh, on show here a little bit that's done apparently entirely with ballpoint pens, like one of, you know, like, were you that obsessive guy at the back of the class who was, you know, drawing barbarians and swords with a ballpoint pen and lots and lots of heavy lines? Or is this something you came to later in life?
1: Yeah, that was me. That was you. <laughs> you were that <laughs> you guy.
0: Were,
1: yeah. If you look at the uh, the image comics of the early 90s, you see that obsession with detail. And I remember people say, comparing them to, like, high school fan art or something. And that's, you know, of course, that's what I was doing. Just just obsessively rendering and putting in all these stupid details and the ballpoint pen kind of, it recreates that. That's a, it's a very accurate description. You know, I started doing those ballpoint pen drawings. I, I don't know time is hard for me to remember, but maybe six or seven years ago. And that's what I was doing in art shows. Um, I would just draw on notebooks using at this point, like big pens, you know, like those four color people describe them as a kid's toy, but the pens that have the different colors on the top and you just push down which color you want. And uh, I started drawing those and the response was, it was immediate. Um, You know, and I think that you combine the notebook paper and the ballpoint pen and everybody has has kind of viewed that through their eyes, you know, whether you're absentmindedly doodling during a meeting or having flashbacks to traumatic, uh, you know, school memories. Um, I think it was something that people just recognized, and I like drawing with the ballpoint pens. They have kind of a really nice value range. They feel good on the paper, and uh, it it does connect to my own high school and junior high school memories of drawing, because I drew my whole, you know, as long as I've been alive, I've drawn, and I used to say that I make comics because I love to draw, and now I think there's more to it. Uh, You know, I think there's certain communication that, that I love in comics, and I think that Right, putting these, the artwork with a story creates greater power for the artwork. But definitely, like drawing is my first love, and so that's what those ballpoint pens, drawings kind of, I think it comes out in that.
0: So you're not using anything fancy like rose art pens. These are just cheap old big pens.
1: They're the worst. Yeah, we we would have art shows and people would be buying stuff, and I'd be like, now keep in mind. These are not archival. Like, (laughs) I'm not sure what you're going to have in two years, you know, Um, and everybody kind of laughed at that. But I'm sure some people probably have some odd looking pieces by this point. I would get pens like wherever I would find them. And then the ones that that I, you know, felt worked the best or whatever, I would just buy lots of those and. You know, anytime I go anywhere, like I I was in Japan earlier this year and I bought a bunch of different pens and and ballpoint pen stuff there and stationery there, you know, to draw on. I tried um, experimenting with different papers when I was making those drawings and better paper actually would clog up the ballpoint. You know, if there were like fibers in the paper, it wouldn't it wouldn't work well. I needed like the cheaper the art supplies, the better. That Die Hard piece that was a poster for uh, a local theater theater. I was doing posters for them for, I don't know, one summer or summer for a couple months, uh, just because I like movies and, uh, they were showing diehard. So like that piece that you mentioned, uh, you know, for listeners, if they haven't seen it, it's like a color, it's, it's like a coloring book front and back. So it shows the, uh, climactic scene of diehard. Whenever we see him from the front, giving up to the bad guy and then when it cuts to the back, we see that he has a gun tape to his back. Um, so that that's what the piece was. It was like a two-sided poster, and I actually printed it on newsprint, um, you know, to, to uh, resemble, like, a cheap coloring book. And then I colored it with crayons.
0: Of course. <laughs> it's, it's a nice piece. Um, the, the one facing the, the first part of that with uh, the kind of – that's supposed to be supreme or something with just every ridiculous op art thing thrown at it. <laughs> it is Supreme. Rob liefeld Supreme. I wrote to him to get permission
1: to uh to put that piece in there. Uh that was for an art show about um it was called Rub the Blood in Philly, and it was like an image extreme kind of art show celebrating that early nineties image style.
0: Oh, okay. So that'd also be in the catalog. I think I've got that here somewhere. Um Okay. So I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, Jim, but um, a lot of people are wondering about USApe what's what's going on with USApe
1: I don't have enough hours in the day <laughs> um, yeah i i don't USA probably has never appeared in
0: uh, he's in he's in Supermag right yeah there's like a full color one page thing here that and then there's a reference on the very last page that's sort of a Dylan Horrocks style diary strip thing Right. Uh, sort of like the Kulchalka type things. And it's like spent the day working on us ape strip. This is so horrible. <laughs> went for a walk with my wife and it's just like, I'm looking at that. I'm like, wait, I, I felt like I knew Jim's works. What's us ape. I'm like, is that something in Rambo 3.5? Like I no, forgot. <laughs> I'm like, you know, what for is the sake this? Of
1: that, for the sake of that diary strip, that is the previous page. Um, U.S. Ape's a character that I oh, yeah, that I is. kind of work on, and the first mention of him is actually an aphrodisiac. There's an ad for a US Ape comic.
0: I saw that. It's just like, what is going on? Is this some meta thing, or what's, what's happening? No,
1: I want to do U.S. Ape comics. I just haven't had time. U.S. Ape is kind of this cartoon character that's mostly inspired by 80s action movies, and it, the concept is, like... It would start at the end credits of those action movies, which always end in some ridiculous fashion, you know, of of the hero having just blown up something that he shouldn't be walking away from. And then he goes heading for home or whatever with whoever he rescued. Um, So that's kind of the the idea would be like this action hero returning to the suburbs, you know, retiring because he's had too many missions. A lot of those action movies. It's one more mission, you know, is is kind of how they're framed. And so uh, this was going to be like post that last mission. Um, But I just haven't haven't had a a chance to really focus on it and and create the whole comic yet. Um, But it is it is something that we've we've played with a little bit. You know, that page that's in Super Mag was like page one and we had done several pages at one point with the idea of doing them as a webcomic. Um, but again, just time wise, uh, you know, there's just not enough time to do everything I want to do, but hopefully, you know, USA will come around one of these days.
0: Sergeant USA. Wait, Sergeant <laughs> US Ape was on his last day at the 12th precinct. It's amazing how many of those movies, like not even just the, the action hero ones start out like it's the guy's last day. You know, oh, and yeah. of course, you you know, immediately, you know, they're going to beat the bad guys, but he's going to die at the end. And it's like, you know, I can't, I can't see this happen to Bobby Duvall again. You know, like I can't go on this ride with him and know he's going to die. Um, is that
1: a falling down reference?
0: Uh, I, I was trying to his remember. Last day. Isn't it in colors is his last day too? Probably. I feel like it, <laughs> it happens so, every time.
1: Such, it is such a cliche. And I, I love that about action movies.
0: Yeah. Uh, Bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't tell you how many times I've watched Die Hard. It's like really like a lot. It's like a really large number. Um, it's like the Nancy of movies. Um, <laughs> like that one and like The Fugitive and probably uh, the, the one with Sean Connery and the submarine.
1: Oh, um, yeah. Uh, Is it Red Tot?
0: Yeah. No. Red something. Whatever that movie is, I've seen it so many. I like. I know the words like better than Alec Baldwin does at this point. Still can't think of the name of the film.
1: Yeah, it's killing me.
0: Uh, red something rising. No idea. Uh,
1: it's, it's not been, Red October. Red
0: October. It is Red October. Wow. Real brain I feel trust like I'm at work. Losing here today. all of
1: my action movie credentials. No. Actually, that's yeah, kind of a legitimate movie, though. That's not really like. You know, like, let's talk Rambo three, you, you know, for an action movie.
0: I think they kind of lost me by Red that October. I don't think I made it to <laughs> Rambo three. I remember being a kid and thinking, you know, the first blood, the first one was such a like anti-war, like lefty kind of film. Uh, and apparently I, I missed the point completely, unless it was a level of satire I, I couldn't yet appreciate. Um, That's a strange
1: franchise taken as a whole, because yeah. you're right. From movie one to movie four, it's just like what? What did you that? just watch?
0: You know, and Rambo being the you know the face of American, uh, whatever it is, business interests worldwide. Uh, I don't know, did you read that interview uh, the other day with um, uh, Jose Munoz in uh, the Comics Journal?
1: No, I haven't read it yet.
0: Because he he grew up in Ar- you know Argentina yeah. uh, when things were you know not exactly pleasant, and he just like he he put it all right there in black and white folks and it was just brutal. I'm like, yeah, that's how some people see this place. So, anyway, not trying to get I political. I'll have to read that. It's it's a good interview and I mean, he's just one of my favorite or William Yos know, and Sampaio are two huge favorites of mine. I'm like looking that all over my center
1: books. So beautiful.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad they got it right. I was like really nervous. This is stuff that'll obviously not make the final cut. I've lost. Oh, there it is. The Rambo 3.5 mini comic. I don't know if there's anything we need to talk about in there, but it's a great thing.
1: Yeah, I don't know what I can add to that. I um, I made that after a year of pretty intense work, and I basically woke up on a Monday after I just finished my last big deadline, and I was still in that work mode. And so, like Rambo came, Rambo 3.5 came out of that, where it was like an idea that was in the back of my head. And it was like, I'm still in work mode, so lay it down. It was fun. I took it to a show, Space, in Columbus, which is a close, you know, Columbus is pretty close to Pittsburgh, and I would always do Space because it was a small press show. It's where Street Angel actually debuted as a mini-comic. It's where I met Dylan Williams. So it it was a good show for me over the years. And I took Rambo 3.5 there, and it was a two-day show. And I sold like two copies on day one. And I'm like, man, I thought this was going to (laughs) be... Like, people would love this. What happened? And the next day, I sold out of them. Right. So, like, it floated around at night, you know, a couple of people, and they would show up and buy one for their friends and stuff. And
0: Yeah, it's, it's done well for me. I know that. Um, I, I still have, I have a bunch. I forget how many I got off you last time, but I may have also ended up with some of Bergen Street uh, comics ha- copies.
1: There's a German edition that's, like, a bigger size that I really like. And I I always think about doing like a new, a new version that would be a little bit bigger show off the art. It's funny. The, um, the German edition does pizza hut instead of taco bell. And I remember getting it back and being like, Oh man, like what kind of that's, you know, they messed up the translation here, but I guess there's like taco bell just isn't a thing.
0: Oh, right. That would make sense. Yeah. It's it's weird being in, in uh, like Spain and seeing like Mexican restaurants and being like, that's like exotic here. Um, I guess because Americans (laughs) perception of, you know, I live in California, so I've, you know, more of that view of, of culture than say a lot of America would, (laughs) who I don't know, watches Fox news or whatever. I keep, I'm, I'm trying to not go to politics. I keep doing it. Damn it. Um, but yeah. Anywho. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious now that you brought it up. Um, you know, what kind of success have you had, uh, with your books in, uh, different languages, different countries, um
1: street angel's been translated i don't know three or four languages uh like gosh i'm probably gonna get a wrong country in here somewhere but you know like france spain i want to say italy um so i've had a few things translated here and there uh aphrodisiac was a book that there was interest in and i just couldn't quite figure out how to physically prep it uh for a translation because the art is such a strange assemblage and you know, like I letter as part of the artwork and in that book I'm coloring some of it and there are just several layers. And by several, I mean like 40, you know, like the files I, Yeah, I, I can't imagine
0: that is if you just didn't translate his name though, it actually suddenly gets much, much easier. Um...
1: That's probably true. I, yeah. Like translating his name, I think would be impossible based on the lettering and art because there's so many logos and title, you know, like big, title type lettering with it. But, um, you know, like like I said, Street Angel's been around, um, but that was the original book. So most of those translations are 10, ten years ago at this point.
0: Right. Um, I wanted to ask you, you're, you're talking a little bit about, you know, little jobs here and there and things that went into Super SuperMag. Um, do you have any kind of sort of odd, like smaller job you've done or something that's, you know, particularly interesting or that you're fond of? Um,
1: that you want to share Yeah, I probably have a million of those I- I'll tell you two good ones for super mag so if you open up super mag the first spread is on the left it's book sh- It's uh, librarians kissing or somebody in, in the library kissing behind like bookshelves um, and then the facing page is uh, like a bathroom stall and presumably somebody performing oral sex you know you just see their legs so who knows maybe that's not what they're doing but uh, that's what it looks like so um, those two pieces both have some fun history. So the, the library piece is one of my most popular images, you know, and it's gone around social media and stuff. It's been used in different books. Um, uh, Warby Parker, the eyeglass company, contacted me to use that, to basically create a mural of that in uh, a shop they were building in Brooklyn. So that ended up being like in a room, like on all four sides. So if you're in the room, it's, it's their bathroom. If you're in their bathroom, you're basically like surrounded by bookshelves. And then one of the walls has the kissing couple. Um, the other piece was done for, uh, Robin Bougie who does cinema sewer. And it was at a time when I was just like trying to get work. It was kind of like after some jobs had dried up and I was looking for whatever. So I was trying to find, you know, things that made sense for the kind of work I like to do. And, I love movies and I love, you know, like exploitation movies. So I reached out to him and I did a story for him in, it might've been in Cinema Sewer, one of his publications, but it was about this old theater, this old adult theater in Portland. And then cut to like two years later, and I'm in Portland with friends walking around at night and came around the corner to see that theater. And it was like this deja vu moment because I had no idea where it was. And it was just like, whoa, you know, what am I I've seen this before and then realized it was this story that I had done. Oh, nice. About the theater. So it was kind of cool.
0: I've got to ask you um, the names on the books. I see a couple of cartoonist names on on the, the books on the library shelves that I recognize. And who are the rest of these people? Is that like your high school graduating class or what's what's going on there? That is the cover to the journal that I said I art directed. That's the cover to
1: the first issue. Ah, so that's all contributors. the contributors. Okay. Some are writers, some are cartoonists, some are artists.
0: Right. Okay. I'm, I'm clearly an idiot who only knows the two girl cartoonists. <laughs> Nobody else. <laughs> um, how did uh, it end up that a teenage ninja off the, the streets of Angel City ended up uh, having her adventures portrayed by a bunch of Australians? I still am not sure
1: how that happened. <laughs> Somehow the book made it to Australia and we got a random email, uh, you know, from a student. So it was done as an like a, in their a master's program at a film, television and radio school in Australia. And the person who directed it just emailed us with interest to adapt it for their, you know, like thesis project. And I saw no harm in that. So that's kind of how it went. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I've kept in touch with him and like now he works, he does stuff for BBC and makes short films and stuff. It was a really good experience, but it wasn't something I had a lot of input on. Um, the, the filmmakers were very, uh, you know, they stuck to the source material possibly more than they should have maybe, right. um, you know, so it was really cool to see. And I would often describe it as kind of like sixties Batman, you, mm-hmm. you know, cause obviously they were limited in budget, but did their best and made some cool sets. And yeah, it it was just a fun project, but it was mostly just somebody reached out to us about doing it. And we, you know, put together a small contract to kind of protect ourselves a little bit. And that was it. And I should say people can see that short film. Yes. You know, you Google it. It's on Vimeo. It might be on YouTube, but it's it's not hard to, to see.
0: So the short film version of Street Angel is available to view on Vimeo, and we'll have the link for that on the blog post. So, okay, Fletcher Hanks' Stardust decapitated. What's up with that?
1: I love Stardust. I love Fletcher Hanks' work. Um, you know, it's public domain character, and it seems like it fits Street Angel. Like, Street Angel, in my mind, is the superhero. You know, like, she's the toughest, best, unstoppable She's a superhero. And so, uh, you know, when a space wizard loses their mind and the universe is in jeopardy, Street Angel's a pretty good person to have on your side.
0: Okay. So you also teach a little bit at SVA, uh, the School of Visual Arts in uh, Manhattan? Yes. What do you teach? Oh, so I
1: teach, I've been teaching there in their MFA program for visual narrative.
0: So you're one of Marshall Arisman's disciples
1: indirectly i've met him one time um you know i've never i never had him for class or anything but nathan fox who is the chair of the visual narrative program is very close to marshall okay. so it's it's that lineage you know like if you think of like the nfl coaching tree right <laughs> yes, it goes back there
0: yeah his his class was so good that uh when i was at sva in the 80s i totally just audited it you know i didn't get credit or anything but i i showed up every single week did every single assignment and it like you know, I'm not gonna say it changed my life but it was one of the best classes I ever took is there anything that stands out to you that you still
1: you know that you feel like is the gem that you took out of there or something that you think about and still kind of apply
0: uh, I'm not sure if I can get that specific I guess but it it you know it did directly affect you know what I did as far as making a living off of my art is I, I ended up not going into you know comic strips or or books, you know, and the panel-to-panel narrative thing, I ended up doing basically, you know, narrative illustration. Um, So I should
1: probably discourage the students that are into the the comic side of it, push them away a little bit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's the perception that there is a schism there, I think. Uh, I mean, that's certainly how I view it. Um, You know, the fact that it was set up as part of the illustration uh, department. At the time, um, That you know, Marshall started doing those sort of courses there the the comics um program at sva was r- just really not very well regarded despite the presence of art spiegelman harvey kurtzman and will eisner i mean this seems hard to imagine now but it's you, even though you know they were started as a comic school back in the 40s uh you know it, that was a very looked down upon uh department uh when i was there in the 80s that's so
1: interesting in hindsight do you how much of that do you think is i i always think that Personality types kind of fit into different occupations, and cartoonist personality, you know, <laughs> I'm sure we could, we could profile what makes an average cartoonist, but they seem so anti-authoritarian that I wonder if that is part of why that program would have been disparaged. Like no matter who was teaching it or the quality of it, it's mostly based on cartoonists sort of being cartoonists in their description of it or the way it's regarded. Do you know what I'm saying?
0: Uh, Kind of, yeah. I, I would have thought more just, you know, the art form in general being like, you know, compared to like, you know, magazine illustrators of the time or painters. You know, the painting department was, or the fine art department was extremely conservative at that time. Um, yeah. Using computers or collage or, you know, I mean, they were stuck in the, you know, 1910 or something. Um,
1: well, I don't know when you were there, um, but I... I guess those guys taught '80s
0: and '90s would have been. Yeah, that's about right. Um, Comics
1: in general were kind of disregarded, you know, as a whole. Like I often tell younger cartoonists how jealous I am that they can get good comics in a library or at school or go study them in a class. Like all of that stuff was met with discouragement when I was a kid. You know, Garfield was like the only thing you could find at at my library, which is insane. Whenever you, you know, when you think about the argument for and against comics that Garfield would be the thing that gets by, but.
0: And Garfield's still with us. That's almost more incredible.
1: Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I don't hate Garfield like some people do, but it's just odd. Like I remember as a kid, that was it. That was the comics that I was going to find in my library. It's not, not a lot. Mm -hmm. I once heard you talk about the um, different cartoon gangs from SBA and oh like, god, you know,
0: generationally. <laughs> Were you at that? <laughs> I wasn't.
1: I heard like a write up about it. That oh, was in okay. Seattle or somewhere, I think.
0: Um, that was at the last uh oh, what is that called? The the old Portland show that they they don't do anymore. Um Stump Town. And yeah. uh, uh Robin uh, McConnell was supposed to kind of introduce this uh, panel of old Meat House people. And I think since he knew I was an SVA guy, um, and at that point was already Alternative Comics uh, publisher, who, you know, worked with all the Meat House guys under Jeff Mason, he asked me, um, for some reason, and so I, you know, I stayed up all night the night before writing out kind of a era-by-era era thing of, you know, yeah, different kind of cartoon gangs, like, um, you know, the, the legendary one uh, from the 40s and 50s being the Flegals, I think that's right, uh, the EC Comics guys, you know, Al Williamson and, yeah. and whatnot. And, you know, there's the era I was there, there's Funny Garbage um, was around, and then, you know, I was there on the same time as Tom Hart and Sam Henderson, um, uh, actually shared a studio with Tom Hart, and then, you know, later on Meat House, which was like, it's almost unimaginable to have that kind of body of talent and like, oh, yeah, those guys were all friends and they like worked on these books together. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of laid it out bit by bit. Uh, I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah. All, all the the Meat up. House
1: guys were like the first guys that I met at probably at SPX. Oh, that's you a know, good like
0: game. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Great, great talent. Lots of great people in there. And it was just like such a this is it. Like it felt welcoming, like. I, I found the right place. I've yeah. been looking for this for 20 years, and I finally found it. Um, you know, so I have such fun f- fondness for those guys.
0: Yeah. Ooh, Meat House. We love you, <laughs> Meat House. Uh, I'm a total production nerd, so it's like I was like, oh, he's got one of those large format Epson scanners. I wonder what model. Uh, it's an
1: Epson Expression 10,000 XL. Oh, is is it? I bought it used off eBay. At least ten years ago, and it has been a beast for me.
0: A beast, in, in other words. It's... Oh, you love it? Okay. Oh, it's great. <laughs> yeah, those those things are just amazing. They're phenomenal quality. Um, but I know I see
1: people that have that Mustack scanner because you know there were a couple of those eleven by seventeens ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah, and... I, I have a
0: Mustack and if you know what you're doing, you can get away with it. That's the it's only. It's
1: shocking to me. Like the little exposure I've had to them, I have such a low opinion of
0: them. Well, the big thing is you can't scan in line art in it. I mean, in like printing comics generally, I think going with line art's a bad idea because the printing technology's gotten so advanced. Whereas, like fifteen years ago, it would have you know made a difference. Um, yeah. you can actually send grayscale art and it looks just fine. Um, but anyway,
1: I've always scanned grayscale and then converted it to bitmap based on uh, Jordan Crane had that. Re- reproduction guide
0: Oh yeah, the it? the repro guide, uh Jordan Crane, um Brian Ralph, and I forget who else worked on that.
1: David show Right. Um I think it, it, Ron Regie. There's a few there, there there's some great people in it. Um I actually used to work at a day job where I I would I had my own printer and everything in my cube, and so like I would make mini comics and I made like a print edition of that that I still have. It taught taught me a lot of what I know <laughs> that book. Nice. PDF whatever it
0: was it, it's still available uh to download somewhere out there I, I, I know I've seen it um I, I actively like sought it out again a few months ago and it's it's around
1: I feel like anytime I see Jordan Crane anywhere I'm like this stalker and at some point like I'm 40 like I need to knock it off it, it <laughs> might have made sense the first time I met him in like 01 or something but
0: yeah. yeah I was out of comics for like 10 years from around well basically the whole uh, knots pretty much like i Left California in 98, end of 98, and I didn't get into comics again until 2008. So I missed out on pretty much that whole generation. Um, I only just met Jordan Crane, I don't even know, a couple of years ago uh, for the first time. So. Well,
1: I always associate him with high-water books. Yeah. Uh, which were like super eye-opening and influential, you know, and I think he was very instrumental in the, in how good those books looked. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. I have. Um, he did some uh, production work on Colchakos books uh, that Jeff Mason put out, and so I've got you know his files and notes and things, and you know very detailed, and meticulous. Um, definitely knew what he was doing. Great control of color. I, you know, if I could look at like whole rooms of stuff with just his color prints, I'd be perfectly happy.
1: Yeah, his, seeing his prints at shows was always a highlight. You know, because he was West Coast and I was East mm. Coast, so like. I didn't see his stuff that often. And whenever there would be a show where he'd be at, it was like, oh, yeah, (laughs) the the prints are just remarkable.
0: So something I noticed, there was a video of you um, that showed what I presume is your your drawing table. And taped to the top of it is a few comic panels in black and white. I think there's 22 of them. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Do you you still have that or was that just a, a fluke?
1: Yeah, I still have it. I'm I'm very lazy about cleaning up, so it's still on, <laughs> taped on my drawing table. It's Wally Wood's. Is it twenty twenty two panels? No, I don't know how many there are. Twenty one or twenty two panels that always work.
0: I feel like it's twenty two. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that. that's true. But
1: anyway, I love that stuff. Um, you know, anyone that doesn't isn't familiar with this, Wally Wood famously drew. 22 panels very quickly on a couple of pieces of paper for an editor. As these are the panels that always work, and it became sort of a meme, you know, decades before the internet. But of course, you can find it online, and so that's what it is. And it's just like, you know, long shot of a silhouette figure, uh, figure with no, no background. Um, you know, view through a window of two figures. You know, like it's just these kind of basic shots, close up of eyes, that kind of thing. And uh I don't know why I have it taped to I have a relatively large drawing board. I'm not sure why I taped this up there. But
0: uh yeah, it's hmm. No, you do occasionally actually reference it then. You know, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to reference
1: it more than I do. Uh because I think it's it's cool and interesting. Um, but mostly I just have it up there uh because I like it. You know, I, I don't you know, I don't I don't know about the validity of this. It's not quite, you know, Kirby as a Background for comics making, but uh, it's interesting. I like I like thinking about it for sure. I like having comics, par, you know, paraphernalia around.
0: Right. Yeah, I think the story is that uh, Bob Stewart had done the actual assembly into the one page that most people have seen. Uh, I think I've heard Larry Hama referenced as being somehow involved in all that. Yeah, Larry um, Hama. I always hear
1: in reference to it.
0: Yeah, we could we Maybe. could go on about him. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, wally wood or larry hama
0: either one but probably larry hama <laughs> like i can't tell you how many times i've looked at the you know the the comics he's drawn the the gi joes where i'm just like this guy like is a master of comics i can't believe he's drawn so few of them
1: yeah it's it, it's it's interesting the comics that have uh weird influence right like the the silent gi joe issue is is one of those that such an impact on people i was going to do a zine at one point of letters letters columns and like found advertising basically typeset material i remember
0: i remember you talking about that that never occurred
1: no it it made it to uh, a couple of scans on my hard drive but that's as far as it got but one of the things that really inspired me to want to do that the letters column that followed the silent issue like three issues later i think it was issue 24 maybe it is it is so divided by people that are like, if you ever do something like that again, I will never I will cancel my subscription and never buy another G.I. Joe comic to like the next one being like, I've read this comic eight times, man. It's like magic. I've never seen anything like this. This is the greatest thing ever. Oh, man. Um, it's, it's such a funny letters column. I'll tell you, um, I listen to tons of podcasts whenever I work. It's like uh-huh. all I do. And
0: okay.
1: there's one called High and Mighty where these guys, it's, it's a comedian. And then he would have different guests on each episode and they would sort of have themes like sandwiches or television or comics or whatever. And he had, he had a couple of his meathead buddies would come on called Action Boys and they would review like an 80s action movie that they loved. And they did like maybe four or five of those over the span of 100 episodes, but I loved them. I didn't listen to the rest of the podcast. It was just the Action Boys episodes. They started a Patreon and they do it weekly now. And it's the best five bucks a month I spend. Like, tomorrow, I, I'm excited right now because tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'll have a new episode of Action Boys.
0: So, yeah, Jim, uh, you have a Patreon set up to uh, continue doing the work on Street Angel. Yes,
1: it's uh, Patreon.com slash Street Angel.
0: Okay. And
1: um, I serialize. So uh, the, the newest graphic novel that I'm doing, Superhero for a Day. I've been serializing on there. And then I post, you know, um, I also do a webcomic, streetangelcomic.com. So I post those on the Patreon early. And then I post, you know, ancillary stuff, sketches, character designs, uh, you know, book roughs. Um, There's a lot, I generate a lot of material in making a book. Um, So Patreon is a place where I, I tend to share that stuff and talk about some of the choices I'm making and, you know, show some of the things that I'm doing and you know, basically try to get feedback and see how people respond to it. And it's still relatively new. Um, You know, I incentivize when I can with physical objects, like I'm making pins that are coming up. So, you know, the upper level people will get that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of like, I like all of these different models, and I'm always eager to try them. So Patreon is the one I'm focusing on at the moment.
0: So, hey, Jim, it's been great talking to you today. I'm really excited to see the Street Angel Superhero for a Day book, the third in the series from Image Comics, and that'll be in stores in October. And it's available to order through your local retailer now.
1: Yes. Um, thanks for having me, Mark. It's, it's great talking with you. And uh, as you said, the new book is coming out. So pre-order it. Let your, let your stores know. Let your libraries know. And uh, let me know what you think of it.